This is Disaster Town. <laughs> If you are old enough to remember that, you're probably too old to be listening to podcasts. But <laughs> but today, <laughs> because it is the month of December and we need some bright spots and good news this year, the 2020, the burning porta potties in a dumpster fire, um, we decided we'd talk about Christmas, not Christmas miracles, <laughs> we decided we'd talk about disaster miracles, things that happen in disaster that are you know, miracles. So, yeah, and we've experienced a few. Yes, we have. I'm happy to be joining you from snowy Genoa today um, in the heart of the Finger Lakes. Snowy Amarillo, too. <laughs> that must be 2020. <laughs> you yeah. have more snow down south than we have up north. Yeah, this is, yeah, this year just keeps getting better and better. So, yeah. why were we talking about? Disaster Miracles. Well, I think the reason we decided to do that is because we've talked about so many hiking and, and hard things that people go through in the, in the midst of a disaster. And we wanted to kind of lighten the mood a little bit and give us some hopeful stories about things that happen in disasters that are, you know, encouraging and, and hopeful and enlightening. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Disaster Miracles. And, and it's the season for miracles. So, good. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. And it was Barb's idea, so that's good. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're talking about miracles. We'll look at the definition. So we're going to define what a miracle is to start off with. A miracle is defined as a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Now, that isn't to say like the CIA or the FBI. That's not the kind of agency <laughs> they're, they're not that they're talking agencies. about. It's the GOD. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, yeah, right. It's the DAT agency. Yeah, DNT. Right? So, yeah. um, <laughs> so it's a supernatural phenomena, a mystery, a prodigy. I'm not exactly sure how prodigy fits into that. Well, that, somebody has a, miraculous. I guess it's somebody who can do some. Miraculous their, things like playing the yeah, piano at three years their old. Ability. Yeah, those things. <laughs> right. The and then the, the sixth definition is a sign, a highly improbable or extraordinary event, development, or accomplishment that brings very welcome consequences. And then it gives as an example sentence, it was a miracle that more people hadn't been killed or injured. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of fits right in with our, our theme, so... I thought it appropriate to talk about miracles. And, and we're not talking about, you know, some things that happen in disasters, people say, well, it was a miracle. And really it was either, you know, it was either pre-planning or dumb luck. But sometimes it seems like, you know, it's not a Marion toast kind of thing. A miracle in a disaster is something that really shouldn't have happened that does. And I think the first one we'll talk mm -hmm. about is the uh, church choir story. Because that one was the one that interested me the most. Um, Rowena mm -hmm. Vandergriff talks about the Westside Baptist Church explosion that took place over 60 years ago. 
and it's a it's a remarkable story. They were planning on having a choir practice, and all the members of the choir, 15 members, was were going to show up for that. Uh, ended up being late, and so here's what happened to them. First of all, Marilyn Paul Mitchell was a member of the choir whose mother was the choir director. She said the members were always prompt and ready to sing by 725. Mother expected us all to be punctual. Most of all, everyone was there on time. I can't remember a time where anybody came late. Vandergrift and her sister were late because their car had broken down and her alternate ride was late picking them up. The pastor, his wife and daughter, were late because the daughter's dress was soiled and the wife was ironing another one. The pastor had actually lit the furnace earlier in the evening and returned home across the street. One choir member was working on an important letter, while another member and her daughter were late because they had to tend to matters at her mother's house before arriving. Another man was late because he was taking care of his two sons and didn't realize until the last minute what time it was. Mitchell, the pianist for the choir, had planned to arrive 30 minutes early but fell asleep after dinner, causing her and her mother to be late. Two high school students who usually rode together to choir practice were late because one had to listen to the end of a radio program. And finally, Joyce Black waited until the last possible minute before leaving because it was so cold. And Black lived across the street from the church. Uh, at, at 7.27... The church exploded, the boiler exploded, and the church blew up. The explosion could be heard all around the town, and it caused power outages throughout the town. The steeple even blew off the church. Right. <laughs> That's right. People so, saw the steeple in the road the next day. They said it's something to give thankfulness to God for, that it wasn't a disaster that night. And to me, this one is a miracle, because it's you could say it's a miracle I wasn't there because my car broke down. or And... and that could be a miracle or it could be dumb luck. But when everybody that's supposed to be there and is normally on time is late, that definitely smacks of miracle to me. For sure. Yeah, what are the chances that every single one of them was late? I mean, yeah, and, and never yeah, having been late before. a miracle. Right. So there's that one. There's a few other church miracles. Why don't we put those all together? Sure. The Providence United Methodist Church in North Carolina. Um, in 1870, the community of Swan Corner, North Carolina, hoped to build a church on a certain plot of land, but the owner of the land declined to uh, receive their offer for purchase on the property. He didn't want it there, so they built the church on another site. And then it says, amazingly, soon thereafter, a hurricane struck the church. It was plucked up from its foundation and moved to the exact location where the community had originally hoped to build. I think that's called eminent domain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or eminent dominion or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yep, I think it is. You so. don't put the church where I tell you? Well, you know that in the in the Marian vision, she's always telling people, she told Bernadette, build a church here. And she told the children at Fatima, build a church mm -hmm. here. So when the deity wants a church somewhere and it doesn't go where it's supposed to, I guess that's how you get it done. He's got a way to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a couple more. Patrick's Church in Chicago, Illinois. It's the oldest public building in Chicago. During the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the church is one of the few buildings that was left unaffected. Miraculously, the path of the fire missed the church by just two blocks. Mm -hmm. And on that 
that was a really close call. Two blocks is not much for a fire the size of the Chicago fire. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course St. Paul's Chapel in New York City. You can talk about that one, the the one near the Trade Center. Mm-hmm. St. Paul's Chapel in New York City. It's called the little the little chapel that sh- that stood. <laughs> it's like the little train the engine that could, but it's the little chapel that stood. There you go. It's the oldest church in Manhattan and and 9-11 wasn't the first time that St. Paul's was protected from disaster. It survived the Great Fire of New York during the American Revolutionary War. And it served as a um, kind of a clearinghouse. They made it into an emergency operations center because it was the closest thing. And everything around it had been destroyed. Just completely. You, you, you've right. seen pictures of 9-11. There's nothing there except mm-hmm. for the church. There's one more like that that I've. I went to work after a tornado in Arkansas, in Little Rock, and people were telling me that this church that, that was in Little Rock, that the people were in there for choir practice, I believe, and they heard the sirens and the tornado coming, so they got down and huddled down and they prayed. And when the tornado was gone, they couldn't get out of the church because there was cars piled up against the doors. And when they finally got out, they they saw that everything in the neighborhood had been flattened except that church. And I actually went and looked at that, and it, and it was true. Every building in all directions was completely destroyed, and that church was standing right up in the middle of it. So that's, uh, if that's not a miracle, it's darn close. Well, and the thing is that I think you could... And attribute a lot of that to divine intervention. You know, people who say, I prayed and there was a way made for me. And we'll see more of those kind of stories as we go through. There's kind of a pattern established where people, you know, seek that divine intervention. And many times it's afforded them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of neat. There was there was another church in San Pen. Okay, let me say this. Perangarcutiro. I actually. In Mexico. I, San Juan Park. Perengara Cotiro Church. San Juan Perengara Cotiro. Okay. I was pretty close. <laughs> yeah, well, probably I'm not either. <laughs> San Juan's. We'll just say San Juan's Church in Mexico. Okay. Um, it survived eight, eight years of volcanic eruption. Um, when the disaster struck in 1943, the community was able to evacuate before the lava reached the town and no one was killed. The townspeople began quickly building a new church. The Nuevo San Juan Paraguay nearby. The old church, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old church was blanketed by volcanic rock, and it is a popular tourist attraction. So they, uh, so kind of went miraculously the saved from that. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and and let's go back to so. talking about tornadoes because I know you have a tornado story, and that one is pretty freaky too. Right. Well, in, back in 1998, in upstate New York isn't really a common place for tornadoes. No, it's not Tornado Alley. Usually they're out in the Midwest and the Plains states. It's not even Tornado Lane. Yeah, it's not Tornado. It's more like Tornado... Tornado Dirt No, road. it's probably like Tornado <laughs> Sidewalk. There you go. Yeah, Sidewalk. <laughs> footpath, whatever. You know? So, um, But I, because of living... <laughs> In Texas for many years, I knew what to look for. 
And we did have an outbreak of tornadoes during 1998, um, one of which caused fatalities at the New York State Fairgrounds uh, at the beginning of September over the the State Fair uh, weekend. Mm -hmm. But um, the crazy part about it was, you know, usually a tornado comes when the weather's gotten warmer and the cold meets the, you know, the warm air and Mm -hmm. you get the circulation. But this one happened at 730 in the morning. And... um, the sky was, you know, we'd got, I'd gotten up early. We were going somewhere that day, had some young people staying with us, uh, some young adults and my own three children. And we were all here at the house and we were going to go somewhere. And uh, I got up and the sky was clear. And then all of a sudden it just, everything turned dark. Mm-hmm. And I looked out the window and the wind was blowing so hard and the, it was just blowing horizontally past the house. You could see things just debris, you know, tree debris and leaves and stuff like that. And then the sky turned green. And that's, I knew when that happened, that was not a good thing. That's a key. That's a sign. <laughs> that's a harbinger. Yeah. A, a hairbanger. <laughs> sure is. A harbinger. And this, yeah. <laughs> and the sign was get down. <laughs> yeah. So um, I hollered for all the kids, you know, mm-hmm. right? the sign says, do not enter. <laughs> so, but I hollered for all the kids and they came downstairs and um, we got down on the floor in the middle of the, of the living room which was an inside wall and it was away from windows mm-hmm. which is what they tell you to do and we huddled down in a in a in a little group and we started um I just started praying I was like lord please just protect us and I was like everybody down and I grabbed my little 4 year old and hung on to her because she was little and if the wind caught her she she'd go out the window mm-hmm. so um elder kids we were all just kind of hunkered and uh, I just started praying I said lord please just keep this house on the foundation and I could feel the pressure. It was pulsing up and down. It felt like it was breathing. That's how the the pressure kept changing with the, as the storm came through. Mm-hmm. It only lasted for a couple, maybe a minute, maybe even less. But it felt like an eternity because yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh please. <laughs> so I got up from the floor and we got the kids. Everybody was okay, and we went outside to go look and see. And um, when I opened the front door. tree limbs and debris had fallen um, in the like 15 feet from the front of the house and the windshield in my van was broken and the front of it was kind of crushed and then in the backyard we went around to the back and there was two large trees nine to ten inches in diameter snapped off behind the house Mm -hmm. within about 10 feet off the back of the house and then when we walked up to the edge of the road you could see all the way up the roadway the trees were twisted off and snapped off and in the in the road and so we went back and the power was out but we still had phone service so I called the highway department and I said hey we had a storm come through here can you guys come there's a lot of branches down and the guy goes oh yeah yeah you know your typical you know country guy sure we'll be there in a little bit (laughs) well when he got to at the top of the hill we were we were already trying to kind of clear brush a little bit because, you know, just to try to get things pulled off the driveway and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got out of his truck and he said, holy, and an expletive, you know. Yep. And he says, it's not like this anywhere else in the county. And um, and there was, we never like turned in the information. We could have had a declaration. I know it was probably an F1 or two maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, my mother-in-law had come back from trying to pick up my my brother-in-law, he had ridden his bike to work, and so she was trying to catch him so that mm-hmm. he wouldn't get caught in the storm. And he had already made it to work, so she turned around and came home. And she said as she came down the hill, heading towards our house, 
she could see what looked like an upside down tree hanging out of the clouds, just a dark black wow. um, cloud. Mm-hmm. And of course, debris was flying everywhere. But um, so she scooted in her house and the storm came up through and then it lifted, you know, just probably the length of a football field, maybe a little bit more up the hill from the house and went back. But yeah, um, so the only real property damage, thankfully, was just my van windshield, which was enough at the point, you know, it happened. But well, yeah, <laughs> they worked from 8 a.m. until three o'clock cutting up branches and chipping limbs and clearing debris. It took them a good five hours to get everything cleaned up mm-hmm. um, or more. See, eight to three. My math isn't very good. Eight to three but anyways, five. Um, <laughs> but the good part about it, yeah. So the good part about it, though, was that um, they dumped all the cuttings and the, the wood in our yard. And so we ended up with a year's worth of firewood. Well, there you go. And wood chips to do our landscaping with. So... Something good did come out of it. It was miraculous that the house stayed on its foundation because it's not secured to the foundation. The only thing that holds it, it's on pillars. And so the only thing that holds it is the actual weight of the house. So if that wind had gotten underneath there and pulled it, it would have gone up yeah. with the storm. Well, yeah, I look at tornadoes as like the finger of God. And the finger of God doesn't like like trailer parks. So anytime you hear about a tornado, you'll, <laughs> right. you'll hear about the trailer parks. So, um, and, and people, I know that's because of their finances, but people in Tornado Alley should not live in, in trailers or whatever you call them now, mobile home units right. or something. But, um, cause I've seen, right. I went and saw this, these, there was like five trailers and one of them, the first one on the left had one window uh, one window broken and the next one had some more damage and the next one had a big hole in it and then the next one had no roof and then the last one was just a twisted frame so the proximity of each one of those to the tornado is what caused their damage so you know depending on which one you were in <laughs> was whether you survived or not right and i've also heard a right, story right. of a woman who said she was in her trailer and heading for the closet when the window blew open and knocked her over. And just as she got up to get to the closet, a tree fell into the closet. Now, call that what you right. want, but that seems like it was at least pretty darn lucky, mm-hmm. if not a miracle. Right. Yeah, our brother had a similar circumstance happen to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was... He was living in New York. He came from Texas. He'd experienced some tornadoes down there, but he came to New York thinking he would get away from them, but they followed him. And uh, he was over in the Oneonta area, and there was a huge uh, storm that came through over there. At the time, he was living in a trailer, and he put his son, who was an infant, in a car seat, grabbed a hold of his girlfriend's hand, and they started to go out the door for, you know, to go take cover in a ditch because there was a low-lying area just a, a little ways from the front of the house. And so he stepped out onto the porch and he said it felt like somebody stuck their hand in the middle of his chest and just stopped him. Mm-hmm. He, like somebody, you know, would put her, their hand up against you. And he stopped. And when he did, he heard this huge crack and he looked and the tree had snapped off and it fell into the ditch where they were going to go hide out. So... You know, I mean, that kind of miraculous stuff happens. Yeah. You know, babies who are 
found in unusual places after storms, you know, it's just incredible. And there's a (laughs) lot of those stories about babies and tornadoes and babies and just babies in general. Um, There, you can look up, there's a ton of, of baby tornado ones, but there was one that involved a tree, right? Yes. Yeah. There was a, a baby who, um, in, in Kissimmee, Florida, and the tornado splintered the home that they lived in. Um, and so it says that 18 month old Jonathan Waldick was sucked out of the home. <laughs> but then that happens. it says it says in the in the account of it, it says, but the deadly twister seemed to have a change of heart with a child. Mm-hmm. The winds just snatched him out of the home and then snapped off the top of a nearby oak tree and deposited him in the branches on a mattress, safely wound up in a mattress. Wow. Um, and it said that the hail and the rain was pelting them. The concrete house next door was crumbled. The trees snapped off. But Jonathan had just a small bump on his head. Um, Shirley Driver didn't know what happened to him. She was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, she was babysitting. She was a great-grandmother of, of, of this child and their uh, four-year-old sister, Destiny. And Destiny was safe, but she couldn't find Jonathan. And so everyone just assumed the worst because it was just a pile of debris where the house had been. And um, people started to search and look. And um, Ron Vernelson was helping um, his son next door and he came over to help search. Uh, others arrived. They started looking. There was no bedroom. There was, you know, the rubble for 40 minutes. They combed the rubble. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, I think I see a foot. He was looking around the area and they investigated and they saw Jonathan in the tree wrapped up in this mattress and his eyes were wide open, but he wasn't, he wasn't making any noise. And so they thought he was dead. And then they said, then the foot moved and then they heard him whimper and they knew that he was alive. And so one of the volunteers slid through all the tangled mess of boards and limbs and pulled him out of the tree and uh, he was just lying there in the mattress safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I know well, both of us have heard a story about a child who was sucked out of a car seat and placed in a dresser drawer, a closed dresser drawer. I read it in Reader's Digest years ago. I've heard and, that one and I can't find it anywhere. So if any of you listeners know about that yeah. story, we we want to know because we looked and looked and looked for the baby in the dresser drawer, but we couldn't find it anywhere online. So, yeah, give us a call. Mm -hmm. There's another interesting baby on a mattress thing that I was reading about. In the 2004 Christmas tsunami that hit Banda Aceh in Southeast Asia um, and killed hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of people, there was a man who, it started coming in, so he ran back to his house to get to his kids, and his baby was on a mattress and floating away. And he tried to catch it, and he couldn't. And so, you know, of course, he was really upset, and the water started to come out, and he found the rest of his family. And then floating back down the street was the mattress with the baby on it, sound asleep. So that one's kind of odd also, (laughs) I thought. Right. That could be miraculous. Of course, the father very much said it was a miracle, and I would tend to agree with that. Right. And I think about, you know, what if a person is the recipient of that kind of a miracle, what it must do to them 
especially, you know, you think about in disasters, there's a lot of survivor guilt. Why was I spared and nobody else was? Mm-hmm. Or you know, how come I was the one who um, who was was not killed or whatever injured? And um, I think it puts a it puts a real different kind of light on that person's life and would be pretty transformative if you knew that you were the one who survived by some miraculous means. Then that must mean that there's something in your life that you need to do, or you know that it was worth mm-hmm. you know you being spared. So. Yeah, and I've heard arguments about that, which is, so you're telling me that the people who died didn't deserve to be spared or didn't have anything they could do. And I'm, but I'm thinking, no, that's the wrong way to look at that. It's, I mean, I think, I think part of it is not just that they're destined to do something, but I think it motivates them to find something important to do. And um, so I think it works both ways. I think that Maybe they're supposed to be spared for right. a reason, or the fact that they're spared gives them a reason. Certainly is an interesting thought. I heard that argument when I was actually researching the lone survivors of airplane crashes. And if you remember, there was a Northwest flight that crashed right after takeoff into an underpass. Um, and I think it was, I can't tell you the date, but the girl is an adult now and she has children. But there was a four-year-old girl who survived that. She was the only one. Killed her six-year-old brother, her parents, everybody else on the plane. But her mother managed to wrap herself around the little girl. And they think that that's the reason that she was saved. Because she was completely surrounded by her mother. And she went through the survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. She's got scars. She had burns and cuts and things. And and she got together with some other people. And they made a documentary. But Thank you, Dashcam Monitor. Um, I lost my train. Anyways, she's, she's raising her children and she tries to stay low key because, you know, people want to, they want to touch her or whatever. She goes, oh, she's a miracle survivor. Right. She doesn't want to live with that. She wants that to be over and, and live the rest of her life. So, but there, right. but there are, there are lone survivors of airplane crashes and, and large airplane crashes. And it does make you wonder you know, well, what what happened there? And I think, too, you know, the, the, the accounts of people who, you know, didn't get on that plane that crashed or mm-hmm. they weren't in that place where the disaster occurred or, you know, and and just the. I don't know the opportunity that you have, I think, in light of that kind of situation for, yeah. you know, well, I think it's definitely like a you motivator. said, greater, greater things if that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a, a story of a young man in Dallas, Texas in 2019. This is a very recent story. And um, there was a, a, a big group of storms that went through the Dallas area on October 20th in 2019. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I unfortunately got sucked up into one of them, he says. <laughs> <laughs> so the most severe tornado was in a unfortunately got sucked up into one of them. That's pretty unfortunate. Um, he says the most severe one was an EF3 that was on the ground for 30 minutes. And he said, when I say involved or sucked up in, I was literally standing in the tornado. He said, it seemed like an eternity. Mm-hmm. And here's the story, the backstory. I'd gone to Little Caesars, uh, Little Caesars Pizza at halftime during the Dallas Cowboys-Philadelphia Eagles game. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> to get pizza for the game. And he says, when I got to Little Caesars, they'd run out of pizzas. So I had to wait. 
I was waiting when the tornado hit the shopping center and sucked me out of the building. I was literally standing inside the tornado. Hmm. He said he found a support column to hold on to at first, but then the winds spun him off the column and onto a truck that was parked out in the parking lot. Hmm. So he's on the hood of the truck and tries to hold on, but he, there's nothing to hold on to, and the wind's just pulling at him. Mm -hmm. So he ended up on the ground holding onto the rim of the left front tire until the storm stopped. Wow. And he said it was dead still and all, all the lights were off because the power had been knocked out and pe people were screaming. Car alarms were going off all over the, the place and it was like a war zone. Mm -hmm. So an EF3 we know it has a sustained wind of 140 miles an hour. This one was 1300 yards wide at its base. That's 13 football fields wide. Mm -hmm. And he says Words cannot describe what it felt like. He said no. it was beyond horrifying. Yeah. He said, I'm lucky to be alive. Sure. He said, but I don't think you'll meet many people in your life who survived something like this. No. And no. he and says, someone was definitely watching out for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He says, my back and head and lower legs were hit the hardest. He has debris, rocks, mud, glass in there to this day. Mm -hmm. And some of it's, you know, most of it's gone, but it's still there. So Yeah, a little shrapnel. You know, can you imagine clinging to the rim of a, yeah, well, clinging to the rim of a tire to try to keep from being sucked? Yikes. Okay. Um, well, we were talking about Survivor Guilt before. Mm -hmm. uh, they've made an actual entire movie uh, franchise out of that idea of people who didn't get on the plane. It's the final destination movies is they didn't mm -hmm. get on the plane and the plane crashed. So they were supposed to die. So death oh. is chasing them. And they made like seven or eight of those movies. So <laughs> they were, they were pretty weird, but yeah, so that's, that's what that is. And I know there's, there's miracles like protection miracles, but there's also kind of like psychic miracle stuff that goes on. And, uh, Right. And I'm not a big believer in psychic powers, even though I have seen them because our grandmother was psychic mm -hmm. and she knew stuff. She and she did no other way. She yeah. knew it, you know. And so. Right. Yeah. Because. Well, you could you could talk about our ice skating incident. Yeah, well, we um, I think that there is some of that in our family. I know that there are times especially between certain siblings that I'll know that there's something going on, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and maybe too, it's, you know, like God saying, pray for that person or whatever, you know, because mm -hmm. in my faith, you know, that's what I believe, you know, when somebody you're informed of something that, you know, it's a good idea to offer that person in prayer. But um, we were out one time, we lived in a, in a house. This house was like the dream home. It was mm -hmm. a beautiful brick ranch house. Dad built it. We had an 80-foot cliff behind it, two probably 60-foot ravines on either side, and a major highway running in front of it. So, I mean, the, <laughs> the choice of the lot was maybe a little bit... It's not a good place for a dog. a little bit dangerous for kids, but hey. <laughs> right. <laughs> but who cared back then, but, right? Um, but we, we used to... We played on those turnaround merry-go-round right, right. things that were debt were killers. So, and we played... Right, as, yeah. As a matter of fact... <laughs> The playground that we used to play in became a super fun cleanup site. <laughs> so that'll tell yes, you a little bit about our childhood. <laughs> right next to the railroad tracks. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Filled with dioxin. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We're those, 
we those kids who used to ride in the back of the pickup truck, not wear seatbelts. I mean, you know, jump right. bikes. We did all that, that stuff. Yeah, you we, know, we survived. We rode in the back anyways, of the. Uh, we rode um, in the back of the. Um, oh, the station. We rode in the back of the station wagon, and there there would be fumes coming in the back window, <laughs> and all the kids would be going to sleep. So. <laughs> We lived in those pre-safety Gee, the kids times. are quiet this trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they just cracked the window a little bit in the back to make sure we go to sleep. Yeah, but except but anyway, the fumes were coming in there, they too. Said it didn't, they, said, <laughs> no, they said it didn't go up all the way. That was the key. Oh, that window doesn't go up all the way. Yeah, we know. It was sedation. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> Rosy cheek children sleeping. No, that's actually not funny, but kind of is. No, Anyways, but, back to the danger house probably, and the danger car. Why we are, like we are. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, danger house and danger car. But anyway, so the, the ravines had, you know, of course, they had a little stream running down through them. And we used to go ice skating on those little uh, mm-hmm. little ponds. And it was, it was pretty rough, you know, because it was a stream that was going downhill. But we'd go out and we'd, we'd skate. So one morning we decide we're going to go ice skating. And so we bundled up and got our skates and we started down the ravine, got our skates on, skated a while. Well, I was skating behind Katie and I fell. And when I fell, I landed on the back of her ice skate with my forehead and I laid open my, my skull. Ow. Just, you know, one of those clean little cuts there on the front of the head, the forehead. Of course, your head bleeds horrible when mm-hmm. you have an injury there. So I was, I was kind of a little dazed. I think I hit pretty hard because yeah. I was like, well, what's going on? We've all had head injuries. And uh, she, <laughs> she was sitting across from me and had this look on her face. And I was like, what's the matter? And I put my hand up and pulled it back and it was covered with blood. And I was like, ah! and I freaked out. <laughs> so, but Katie being the disaster preparedness person that she's always been at eight or that nine. morning, she was at eight. Yeah. We were like nine and seven or something like that. Yeah. Um, she, uh, she said, oh, you know what? I think we should bring along a washcloth this morning. And she wadded up a washcloth and put it in her pocket. She says, cause we can play emergency while we're down there ice skating. <laughs> well, so she pulls the washcloth out of her pocket and she fills it up with snow and she sticks it on my bleeding head and applies pressure and so she was able to stop the bleeding and I didn't bleed to death in the ravine so we started to <laughs> we started to climb up the hill in our skates yeah, that I don't even take our skates off I don't think I don't yeah. remember and uh, we got about halfway up the hill I was feeling kind of like a little woozy because not from blood loss necessarily, but I did hit my head pretty hard, I think. Because yeah. <laughs> I think I did black out for a minute. I but anyways, don't so know. She, I don't remember that. she says, well, yeah. So she says to me, you stay here and I'll go get dad. Okay, so my dad's six foot four, big, strong guy, you know, Huge always guy. a hero. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> she disappears over the top of the hill. And I'm thinking, well, if I stay here and bleed, I might die. So maybe I'm... <laughs> better try to get up the hill so i i kept kept climbing slowly putting the pressure on my head as i went up and um i got to the top of the hill just in time to see my dad in his little white italian t-shirt and um (laughs) his khakis yeah his wife beater come bounding out 
out of the house looking like a gazelle through the snow. You know, his feet are coming up and he's looking like a gazelle running across the yard. And uh, he comes out and he goes, hey, are you okay? And I was like, I had just gotten to the top of the hill and I was kind of taking a rest. And he goes, okay, we got you. And he picks me up and he takes me in the house. And of course, our grandmother was there and our grandmother was an RN, but our grandmother was a retired RN from New York City and was pretty, (laughs) she was kind of past her prime as far as nursing and was like more panic than nursing skills were kicked in. Yeah, she panicked a lot for for somebody who was an RN. Do do you remember? But after you see it for so many years, you know. But you... she, she picked up a dirty towel and she goes to hand it to my dad and goes, here, here. And he goes, it's okay, Catherine. We've got this. He took me in the bathroom and I had this extra eyeball. Like looked like yeah. my pineal gland was opened up. I had this big your third eye. But it got even better after that because we went to the we went to the doctor's office. It was a holiday and the doctor had been, I guess, sitting around his house drinking beer and, and watching a football game. And when he got me there, he said, well, he, he said, to, he said to my dad, well, you know, if we put Novocaine in that, it's going to scar bad. He says, so if you think she can do it without Novocaine, let's go ahead and just stitch it up. <laughs> and I'm serious. This is really what happened. And dad says, yeah, she can do it. I'm thinking, <laughs> Thanks, does anybody dad. consult the seven-year-old with a gaping hole in their head, you know? <laughs> So he stood next to me and held my hand and I could smell beer on the doctor's breath. And I was like, I'm not going to argue with these people. <laughs> They're both bigger than me and I smell alcohol. So I'm done. Just pin you down. <laughs> That's good. And I ended up with seven, six stitches. And yes. Well, Catherine stitches. is the same one. And who... uh, no scarf. I can't even tell it here. That's great. <laughs> Catherine is the one who we were in the car and there was a railroad track, so it was not near our house. And my mother was driving, which was dangerous. And she she started to cross the tracks when the gates came down. And she froze. And and Catherine is going, back up, Margaret, back up. <laughs> and, and she doesn't know what to do, so she's not doing anything. So I put my hand on the door handle, get ready to jump out. And I look at her, I say, just go forward. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it was my command voice because she finally, she stepped on the gas and went. But it was she was so confused with the <laughs> the, tra- the the gates coming down and the lights and the ding 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 and Catherine going back up back up and and she was already you know in gear to go forward. So yeah, I was ready to to move and I think I actually had my hand on you too. So was, probably and we weren't we weren't well, uh, we weren't trapped by seatbelts either <laughs> because. We didn't right, see right. <laughs> So yeah, living dangerously. We, we those tracks were dangerous. Those tracks were dangerous. We we definitely had our t- issues with those tracks. Like the time we were going across with the glider trailer, uh, hooked to the back of the car, <laughs> the and center. mom took it took it a little fast, like she always did when it came to bumps, and sheared the ball off the ball hitch on the glider trailer, and the glider trailer. <laughs> started dragging across the tracks and got stuck underneath one of the rails so that you couldn't you couldn't move forward because it was stuck horizontally across the rail and so she says get out get on the back of the trailer so katie and i jumped out and jumped on the back of the trailer to counterweight it to get it up so that the tongue would come up and then she inched it across the tracks and got it off onto the side of the tracks just about the time the gates started to come down (laughs) 
Yeah, so, does. yeah, we've had some exciting adventures on those tracks. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what was It a is miracle. a miracle that we didn't die when we were Exactly. <laughs> Especially when we were riding with Mother Mario. So, anyways. Right. Mother Mario. Yep. She's tr- she's gotten better. Now she's moved up to Joey Joey Chitwood status. <laughs> Patrick, is, is she still driving? I just about killed Joey Patrick Chitwood when he said he fixed yeah. the car. <laughs> Joey Chitwood was a stunt driver that used to do jumps and, and ramps and things like that when we were a kid. Mm-hmm. And in Amarillo, they have water crossings that you have to you have to slow down to go over them because they're really deep dips in the road. And mm-hmm. she never slowed down for one of them. No. And so he went to go and look at her car and the whole frame on the front was bent from where she hit the water crossing. She actually <laughs> broke the the strut going into the transmission by hitting the water crossing going too fast. So, yeah, yeah. the time that the that the radio popped out of the dashboard when she hit that one over there on 43rd, she hit that and the, oh, the radio that. came right out of the dash. So. <laughs> Yeah. So it is a miracle that we survived that. So, <laughs> Truly. That was a miracle. That was a disaster miracle. <laughs> well, and I'll talk you didn't about have to go through that. one more of these weird, it's not a miracle so much as it was just very, very strange. Because our dad flew gliders, and that to get them in the air, there'd be a power plane, a tow plane that would pull them up. And he, the guy that did the tow plane would go up alone first and just kind of fly around and see where the thermals were, the rising columns of warm air that keep the air, the sailplanes up. And then he'd come back down and tell them and he'd tow them to those places. Well, normally you and I would fight over which one was going to get to go in the back seat because it was an old L5 tail dragger with a front and back seat. And we, we kept very close, just like with dishes, we took very close care of the count. You were up last time. You washed last time. I dried. This time you dry and, and I wash. Because I remember some of those conversations too. But it was like that. It was like, it was Barbara's She'd turn. always disappear to the bathroom when it was time for her to do it. <laughs> she would get a sudden case of diarrhea. Really had to go. <laughs> Nonetheless, anyways, <laughs> we we used to we used to argue about who, whose turn it was to go, and my dad said to me that morning, "You ready to go up in the in the tow plane?" And I said, "It's Barbara's turn. I just didn't want to get in that airplane." And he goes, "Barbara's not here. Do you want to go or not?" And I thought, "No, oh, I guess I'll go." So I went, got in there. Um, the guy took the tow plane down to the end of the runway and revved up the engines, which all planes do before they take off, make sure it's all running. And, um, and while he was doing that, I had a panic attack and I was just like, I need to get out of this plane. I even tapped him on the shoulder and told him I wanted to get out, but he couldn't hear me. So he took off. And so after he took off, I was better. And we were flying around and he buzzed this farmer's field because it was a friend of his. And when he came up, the engine quit. And me, I was thinking, okay, it's a stall. Because in cars, when it stalls, the engine quits. <laughs> and, uh, but what happened was we, then we had no engine. So he managed to turn it around and land it in a field on a, on a slope. with On a slope with the right wing six inches from the ground and the left wing 18 feet from the ground 
and I could not look out the left window. I could only look out the right one. Crashed into some trees and, and kind of hanging over a pond that was on the other side of the trees. And the same thing that happened to you happened to me. He said, are you all right? And I said, yeah. And then I get out and he just, he just kind of turns pale and says, oh my God. I said, what? He goes, your head. I reached up. I had the same kind of injury you did. Big cut on my head. So that one took 11 stitches. But the weird part about that was that I... Overachiever. Yeah, you know how it is. <laughs> and they gave me no okay. <laughs> had to have more stitches than I had. <laughs> and in a plane crash. <laughs> well, you're an opportunist. You know. <laughs> Nobody's going to get right. this, but maybe our cousins. <laughs> I know. Anyways... <laughs> Anyway, so the, the weird part of that was that I just had this feeling that I shouldn't be in that airplane. And I've never had that happen before. Now, a couple times I wanted to get out of an airplane because we went to a flying breakfast and I had greasy sausage and I was going to lose my breakfast. <laughs> so I really wanted to get out. But other than that, you know, that's, that's I don't know what you'd call that. It's not a miracle, but it was it was something weird because it was... It wasn't something I thought of afterwards. It was happening at the time. I was not wanting to get into that airplane. So. Right. And, and I think, too, you know, there's some things that have to do with, you know, disaster survival, you know, that um, I think that there's a few things that people, skills or maybe different reasons why people uh, there's a difference between somebody who becomes the victim of a disaster mm -hmm. and someone who survives a disaster. Yeah. And I think it kind of boils down to like maybe four things. First of all, I think keeping your head in a situation, you know, making sure that you're, you know, you don't panic, that you try to keep things under control and evaluate the situation. So the second was preparedness plans, being prepared, know the environment that you're in, what if this happened? Where would I go? How many how many doors between me and the exit? How many seats are there? You know, um, all the different things that prepare you. What if somebody comes in with you know some of these horrible shootings, um, public shootings where people you know come in and just start randomly start shooting? What do you do? You get down on the floor. You get under something that'll protect you. You know, those are all the kind of things that you need to plan. So that way, when it happens, you react. You don't do your preparation then. And then I think determination, you know, some of these things like the guy who was grabbing onto the rim of the tire to keep from being sucked into the tornado, he was determined to survive, you mm -hmm. know, that human spirit of, of survival. And then of course, divine intervention, you know, that I think on many, many levels, you know, many of the things we talked about was what people would, you know, pray, please help me survive or help me to know what to do or mm -hmm. give me the right response, you know, and yeah. that, that makes a difference between people who survive and people who succumb in a disaster. Well, as far as your first two things go, and, and our father did teach us to be situationally aware. Um, the first, the, the, the survival and making, keeping your head and making decisions, to me, is a matter of how many decisions you have to make at one time. And if you have pre-planned that... If there's a fire and you can't get out your door, you're going to go out your window. You're going to go out and meet at the neighbor's house so that you know if everybody's out of the house or not, you know. Or 
if there's a tornado, where you're supposed to go. So you that you're a lot of decisions that you have to make in a disaster have already been made, and that's part of the preparation. So that when right. when you're having to make life and death decisions, you don't have to make all these other ones. You just have to make the ones that are directly in front of you. And the other thing is that I think people right. are can be categorized to to any kind of situation like that. To me, this is how I think of it: as rabbits or foxes. And rabbits, when you first scare a rabbit, it'll freeze, and it'll just sit there. And that's the first response that that animal has. A fox, if you startle a fox, it'll run. Now, the fox may eventually freeze, and the rabbit may eventually run, but their first instincts are to do those things. And, to, and what I see is that people are either rabbits or foxes. And, and in airline incidents, in airline preparedness stewardesses are taught that there's they don't call them rabbits but there's rabbits that when there's a crash a lot of people just sit there and not know what to do and stewardesses they kind of go into a stupor so they're trained um they're trained to be loud and very uh assertive and and yell at people to move 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 because if they don't they don't get out of the plane and so i think that that whole situation is is part of survival as well i mean it, it it's a good thing if you freeze when there's a, a murderer in your house so they can't hear you but it's not if there's a tornado coming and you freeze or if you're in a fire and freeze right. and there's also times when if you're in a tornado you don't want to run out you want to hunker down wherever is safe so i'm not sure that that's explaining it well but but to me that's those are the the personalities types that happen in a disaster. And the best way to avoid that automatic response is to plan. So your decision make, this decision is made, boom, 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 they're all made. And then you have to decide whether you're going to take your purse or whatever. I know I had, I think I've said this before. Right. I had a woman contact me in Florida one time and she, she said, my house is falling into a sinkhole and I'm, sitting there because we're there for a, a, a hurricane right so i'm sitting there and go okay i said uh can you get out she says i i I don't, I don't think so and i said well can you get out your front door and she goes no it's underground okay can you get out your back door no it's there's snakes all over and so i finally said is there a window that you can crawl out of and she goes yeah yeah she said let me get my purse <laughs> then she, then she uh, <laughs> hung up, and then she, I, she got out the window. I saw her later. She managed to get out. But that, but that's just to me. I wouldn't have had to call somebody to ask that mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think about right. exits, and right. I think about how many seats to the exit on the airplane, and how many doors when I'm staying in a hotel. Because I've had a lot of fire alarms go off in hotels, and mm -hmm. so I have everything ready well, I... in case I have to leave. <laughs> I think that the the quick reaction too, you know, practicing that quick reaction. I had a an incident that happened to me one time. We were in a kitchen at a church and we were cooking and doing different things and had an electric stove and one of the one of the ladies leaned into the electric stove to take something out and she used a tea towel instead of using a pot holder and the tea towel touched the element at the bottom of the stove and caught on fire mm -hmm. so she came out of the oven with this burning rag going ah ah shaking it in the air like 
And I grabbed it out of her hand and threw it in the dishpan where, uh-huh. where there was water. And she was like, uh, 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 you know, she's, uh, 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 you saved my life, you know. <laughs> but I mean, just being aware and being prepared, you yeah. know. Because she was swinging it around. I mean, it was, it would caught her hair on fire and everything else, you know. So, and people do that. <laughs> they do. They panic. They don't know what to do. So they yeah. react. You know, you've, mm-hmm. you've heard it since you were a kid. If you catch fire, you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. And most of the time, somebody has to right. knock you down to get you to do that because your first instinct, right. instinct is to run. Yeah. So, yeah. So right. we've kind of drifted off the whole disaster thing, but. I mean, the whole miracle thing, but not really. I, I think that, that you sh- to me, if I'm waiting what? around for God to save me from a tornado and I haven't learned how to save myself from a tornado, then I'm asking for trouble. I mean, right. you know, if it comes, you're going to pray or do something like that. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't just say, well... I don't care what happens because God's going to save me. Maybe he wants you to learn for yourself, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That would be a miracle. At at some point, some point God might just say, you know, you're just too stupid to be down there. (laughs) So come on home. Come to the house. (laughs) Come on home. (laughs) Alrighty. Well, I think this has been uh, interesting. It's a little weird. Yeah. Kind of personal, but <laughs> we know mom's kind not listening to it, so that's good. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, tell you no. and everyone else here, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Yes. Have a great Kwanzaa. Anything else that's coming up, have mm-hmm. a lovely Yule. And uh, have happy holidays. I hope everyone gets Thank a vaccine. Thank you from Disaster Tales. Yes, mm-hmm. thank you for listening to us. We really appreciate it because sometimes we just ramble, <laughs> which was today. <laughs> it was ramble day. Yeah, but it was it was a miracle discussion. So you know, miracles come in different shapes and forms, and yes, they so do. So I think we covered the gamut. I was like so. the tall, handsome ones that come along and like <laughs> yeah. miraculously change your sweep tire. you off your feet like a tornado. Yeah. <laughs> They take to change your tire or something like that, you know. So that's good. Alrighty. Well, you yeah, have a good a one. Of those two things. <laughs> All right, you too. Um, bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. Today's music is Puffin Billy, composed by Edward White and performed by the Melody Light Orchestra. Check out Disaster Tales on Patreon. Feel free to contact us at kate at disastertales.com or barb at disastertales.com. Have a lovely holiday. Today's disaster tip is keep your Christmas tree safe. Everyone loves the look and smell of a live Christmas tree, but dry, oily pine leaves can be a fire hazard. Remember to check your tree lights for broken bulbs and frayed or worn wires. Have the tree vendor cut off about two inches of the trunk to expose fresh wood for better water absorption and make sure there's always water in the tree stand. Keep your tree at least three feet away from radiators or fireplaces and if you buy an artificial tree, check that it's labeled fire resistant.